Peter Tokovsky is an education specialist at the Getty Museum. He is responsible for academic programs at the museum and curates the Getty's public lectures and panels, including working with us on our Sokolo programs at the Getty. He also organizes the Getty Center's annual college night, a unique evening for students only, which this year takes place tomorrow. In addition, he is an adjunct faculty member in the Department of German at UCLA and directs their summer travel study program in Vienna, Munich, and Berlin. Please welcome again, Mr. Peter Tokovsky. I'm going to start introducing our panel as we get all set up here. Um, starting closest, Anthea Hartig, Executive Director of the California Historical Society, and prior to that, she spent six years with the National Trust for Historic Preservation, directing the Trust's Western Office. She has served as a Municipal Preservation Planner for over a decade, uh, has her, had her own cultural resources consulting firm, and she served on the Board of Directors for the uh, California Preservation Foundation and the California Council for the Promotion of History. Camilo Jose Vergara, uh, whose work is featured in the Getty Exhibition, part of Pacific Standard Time <coughs> Presents, Overdrive, LA Constructs the Future, 1940 to 1990. Uh, how many people have already gotten a chance to see it? Okay. Uh, the rest of you need to go, and those of you who saw it know there's an enormous amount of material in there, so you'll be spending a lot of time in there. Um, Camilo received a MacArthur Foundation grant in 2002, so it's always good to have a genius on the panel. <laughs> uh, although, as he pointed out the other day, he still didn't get picked up at the airport. <laughs> he has a BA and MA in sociology, and he completed coursework for his PhD in sociology at Columbia. And, and when are you going to finish that up? <laughs> okay. uh, seven books of his work have been published, including Silent Cities in 1989, uh, American Ruins 1999, um, How the Other Half, Warships in 2005, um, among others. Catherine Gudis is Associate Professor of History and the Director of the Public History Program at UC Riverside, author of Busways, Billboards, Automobiles, and the American Cultural Landscape, tracing the relationship between automobility, advertising, and the commercialization of the urban environment. Um, contributor to numerous exhibition catalogs, including Helter Skelter, LA Art in the 1990s, which was uh, presented at MOCA. And she's currently conducting research for her next book, tentatively entitled Curating the City, the Framing of Los Angeles, which explores the ways public art, performance, and history can help frame and socially activate urban space and place in Southern California. And finally, Peter Tolkien is founding principal of Peter Tolkien Architecture. Uh, he studied with Alan Sekula and Louis Baltz um, and worked for a time as a documentary photographer, and that artistic background continues to inform his architectural practice. Um, he received his BA from UC Santa Cruz and an MFA in photography from CalArts and then a Master of Architecture from Columbia. Um, and he continues to practice photography as a complement to his architectural work. Um, as Gregory mentioned in, in welcoming us to the stage, this, this panel will be more about um, those of us who don't get to hire an architect and consult with an architect um, and which I think is most of us in our work and living spaces. Uh, so it's about what we do with those places. I wanted to throw up a few pictures of people who take that uh, independence from their architects quite uh, to an extreme. This is uh, actually 
this is Phonehenge West, which was, was out in, um, uh, where was it, uh, Acton. Um, you may have read about it. Um, it's no longer there because it was, the county decided it was a crime. Um, this is what it looked like. Uh, it's a good reminder that in, in Los Angeles and Southern California, what starts out as not important architecture becomes <coughs> iconic if it's allowed to stand. This is Kim Fahey, who did do some jail time for creating that work. <laughs> um, he's moved it up to uh, Keene, California, where he intends to rebuild it, although it took him 30 years to acquire those materials and create that. So um, he's got a big task ahead. Um, this is an example, one of my favorites, uh, a man named Richard Greaves, who, uh, this is in Montreal. These are not inhabitable, but um, his work has been dubbed an architecture. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is a, the Heidelberg project in Detroit. Camilo can probably tell us more about that. Again, where uh, people without the resources to bring in an architect to create um, unique living spaces have taken that task onto themselves. Um, and then, of course, the work of Camilo Vergara has been documenting a similar phenomenon uh, more in retail spaces. Um, this is the first in a series of uh, his work that's in the exhibition. And so, Camila, do you want to just first talk us through this a little bit? Yes. Uh, I wish I had gone there 40 years before or 50 years before when the building was first there. This building is in uh, South Broadway in uh, South Los Angeles. And uh, I went there for the first time. I took the first photograph in 1992. That's about 21 years ago. I imagine, although I can't say that it, well, I can't say, it was like the building next door that you can see a little bit of the yellow there on the side, which is basically a rectangle. In other words, it, it was like a box, a box that extended to the back quite a bit and, uh, and had a backyard that led to an alley. Uh, my... Uh, intention in photographing that building and many buildings along the street, similar buildings or not similar buildings, was uh, basically to see whatever will happen here. I, the, the form was so uh, complete and so perfect of its type. Uh, I look at the three crosses and I thought, of course, of Golgotha. I don't know if that wasn't my, but since it was a Baptist church, they didn't put bodies there, but otherwise they would have. Uh, so uh, you can move to the next one. So little did I know that at that time, uh, the South Los Angeles was in the middle of a tremendous transformation. It was changing from black to Latino, and, uh, and that was happening very fast. And you saw it in the churches, but you saw it black funeral homes that then turn into tax places for Latinos or barber shops that turn into uh, papucerias or something or other. So uh, there was that is what fascinated me, not to prescribe anything because every time I try to prescribe anything or say anything that should be done, it, it sounds stupid. But, but just sort of to keep an eye and to keep looking and say, this happened. And how do you know it happened? It happened because I was there. And I can see it. Should I could have been see on it. the last panel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, we, let's look at the next one. 
And what happened, uh, what happened here is of course the wind, you know, and that box that was the original building had a fake pediment on top and that of course fell. Of course, people, they're always finding ways to ask me to do additional work. So they say, why don't you go to the buildings <coughs> department and find out exactly what happened and when this happens, because it's all written up there. But I sort of confine my work to mostly to the documentation, and when I have to write something, I go inside and speak to some of the people inside. In this case, when I saw La Casa de Nutrición there, I said, what kind of nutrition is there? Is this like... <laughs> right, is it the Green Cross? Right. Yeah. So, so the, the nutrition had to do with, the, you know, getting pills and getting some sort of foods that would cure you from cancer, uh, give you a more active sexual life, uh, keep you healthy and that sort of thing. So uh, that, that's what was there. And also I became fixed on the little palm tree that mm -hmm. stuck out in the city. <laughs> and, uh, and this is what happens is that you don't develop an appetite for solutions and for saying, you know, this is unjust, you got to do something here, this needs to be fixed. But you develop an appetite for knowing what's coming next. And then I keep thinking that life is too short, you know, that you, you really want to. Man, but before we go to the next one, I mean, a couple other things that we can point out here. One is that there's no one sitting outside in, in this <laughs> building. But um, the, the big change here is not only that the, the top blew down, but they've cut open a completely different entryway for the store. And I'm, I'm gonna assume they, you know, they didn't bring in an architectural consulting firm to do that. <laughs> um, and, so the, the question is, and maybe, and maybe this is where Peter, who's our token architect on this panel, <laughs> jumps in, you know, is, is, is the most democratic kind of architectural form, the plain rectangular box, which, you know, lends itself to modification that's so well documented in Camilo's work? Well, I guess what I would say is in Los Angeles, I think, you know, most of what was called architecture with a capital A, if you look back at the last century, you know, was mostly in the single family residential area. And when you think of the Schindlers and the Neutras of LA, they're kind of really kind of heralded as the kind of modern architects of Los Angeles, where other cities maybe had more of a public realm. And Los Angeles, really, I think it was this kind of uh, ubiquitous commercial strip that, um, you know, was built kind of like, you know, just lying the city and, and most of the, many of the buildings, one story. Um, and, and in a certain way, I think, uh, I know Tom Main was talking about Los Angeles being a laboratory. In some ways, these buildings were, were were easy to kind of to change. So you have everybody from, let's say, artists, you know, taking uh, having their studios, and they could radically transform these, you know, simple boat trust buildings on top of, you know, concrete or, or brick walls. And and uh, so I think that's part. Of, that's very much part of Los Angeles. I think it's a, you know, I mean, maybe it's part of other cities, but I think that the kind of well, I mean, one of the, something that's documented in the Overdrive exhibition is one of the innovations for suburban developments in Los Angeles was that the architects came up with the idea of rotating the houses and turning them 90 degrees and simple modifications on a form, which is what they're doing here. 
And, you know, that was viewed as innovation. One of my philosophies of life has always been never to live somewhere that if I came home drunk, I don't know which house is mine. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of places like that, right? So um, it seems to me letting people do this kind of work lends a, a much greater um, individuality and uniqueness than, than even a kind of clever suburban development. This is uh, the fourth in yeah. Camilo's series. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to photograph the buildings, but also I wanted to photograph who lived in the neighborhood. So that oftentimes involved staying in the middle of Broadway there, waiting for people to pass by and see who would, who would walk by. So it'd be a little bit of a commentary on the people walking by in the building. You can see the palm tree has left. It's not there anymore. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's just, it's, I went back there and it's pretty much the way it looks in this picture. So it's... Uh, what year is this one? This year, this was taken in 2012. So the, the whole story is go back 21 years. And uh, during those 21 years, I have been going almost every year to photograph that building and to see what, what is happening with it. And I have done that with several, with many other buildings throughout Los Angeles. I just happen to spend a week or maybe two weeks in Los Angeles every year, and that's the time when I do it. And, and, and by the way, one of the things you can notice about Camilo's pictures is that he has to stand in the middle of the road to take them. So, <laughs> right. so there is some benefit to traffic standstill in Los Angeles. So Camilo is still here. Yeah. Well, Thank you. And he may be responsible for some of that standstill. In fact. But, you know, one thing I just want to point out, these are the um, photos in the exhibition, right? Yes. Because the exhibition, you know, um, concludes in 1990. But in fact, your photographs are of buildings that may predate 1990, but show an impact that's very clearly related to huge social and economic change in the city after 92, right after the riots in LA. And I think that's a really significant inclusion for the show because it offers a, you know, a layering of social history that is very difficult to really um, see with just architectural um, imagery otherwise, right? And especially because it is such a huge element of, of change to the urban fabric that right. you know, maybe well, was built on modernism. Yeah, I mean, this, this layering of history is obviously integral to what Camilo has documented so extraordinarily, but it's also part of what the, the exhibition uh, here tells us is how Los Angeles has evolved and, and that the original sprawl was part of a, a kind of master plan that has stayed present and is still visible, but these, these facts raise the really difficult problem for historic and architectural preservation, because mm -hmm. preservation um, typically implies freezing a building, we'll say, at a particular moment, but as Camilo's work shows us, um, you know, buildings don't stay the same, so how do we meet that challenge? Well, I think that the ways in which we see this, this reimagination and this kind of reclaiming of the built environment um, is actually the very stuff of history. As the two historians on the panel, I guess, Kathy, but as, and you can get that PhD, we know you can. We did it, you can. Um, but the history has changed over time and the evolution that we see um, here, I think is just this incredible uh, set of narratives that are layered, if you will, like a layer cake. And you're right, the propensity has been, okay, we're gonna have it, this, this period of significance is gonna be frozen at layers three and four. And we're gonna try and, and ascertain and, and utilize our heritage conservation around the world, or our historic preservation models here. But I, I think that the, um, 
what I think is much more interesting is this kind of layering and this, the way in which maybe we're asking some of the wrong lines of inquiry. You know, kind of how then is that layer cake perhaps mashed up and changed around? Um, and then how are places, um, I think, reconceptualized and remade, especially in terms of those marginalizing forces when you don't get to have your own space, when you inherit spaces built by others, whether they are places of controlled power, um, whether they are places of marginalization. Um, and I was struck too, I was, uh, maybe if you could zip to that. Okay, so we're, we, yeah. we didn't know which direction this conversation would take, so we have a, a lot of pictures and oh, we may zip ones through first, different whatever. ones. We'll zip through and see what we got here. We'll, <laughs> um, we'll, should we come back to this? You want to talk about this one? Oh, no. take about this and we'll go to Keen. Okay, maybe. so yeah. this is another one of Camilo's documentation. Well. What I find very interesting here is it's the degree to which in Los Angeles you have paint sort of define the spaces where you move the kind of lettering, the kind of images and so on. And there was a period when Latinos would be painting Martin Luther King a lot and that is when the neighborhood was mixed, when there were a lot of blacks in the neighborhood, particularly if they had a store and they wanted them to be customers. So, so in this case, they would hire Latino painters to do that, and they always gave him a sort of Latino look to him, <laughs> as, as, as you can see here. And, uh, and then yesterday I was back in the same place, and that, <laughs> this is the exact same place, and I don't know if the painter was the same. And I asked, you know, I said, well, what happened here? I went to the store, it's a meat market on 42nd and South Vermont. And they said, uh, well, you know, Martin Luther King, it's, 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 it's a hero for them. Obama is the president of all. Well, and as you can see by the children, right? Yeah. So, so with that explanation, and in other places, Martin Luther King, when the neighborhood becomes completely Latino, has been replaced by Christ, by the Virgin of Guadalupe. Because now, since there are no blacks in the neighborhood, you know, their stronger symbols to them are the ones that take priority. So I thought to share this with you. And, and then um, I think we can go, well, let's skip those. Let's go back to the question of preservation. This, mm. this extraordinary drawing of um, a Rudolf Schindler church uh, I think it's called the Bethlehem Baptist Church. Uh, it's, it's actually hanging in the gallery right next to Camilo's photographs because the, it's the, the community magnet section and it's talking about um, churches. Um, but so Camilo had seen this and then he, you know, he goes out at three in the morning to take those pictures um, and he happened to run across the church. Yeah, but that was in plain day in the middle of the day. So, uh, I mean, Schindler is acknowledged as a modern master. There's a lot of attention to him in Los Angeles, but we haven't gotten around to uh, preserving this. What are some of the, I, mean, I don't know if you know this particular case, but I think, it, well, first of all, it's, what street is it on, Camila? It's on uh, South Compton Avenue, and I believe the side street is 49. Okay, so that perhaps has something to do with why um, the money's not pouring in to preserve it? <laughs> Well, I mean, you're picking up on the, I mean, really this, the key kind of socioeconomic place that preservation has, whether it's 
the Schindler's, Schindler's significance in this room probably and especially on the panel before us and on this one now for all of us as historians is, you know, is unparalleled and we, we wouldn't question it. But I think that this points out if, what, what can that building be next? You know, how will it be used? Who will, is, I don't know, who's in the room who would know if it's a historic cultural monument? You know, like the great work that's been done recently um, on the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company building, which I'm sure some of you were involved with, you know, that masterful Paul Williams building, 1949, in which the Smithsonian themselves had dibs on those murals, you know, taking out this incredible integral art form. Um, because that place all of a sudden mattered very much when you could tell the history of marginalization of African Americans, the fact they couldn't to, get loans. We have some pictures of that, right? That's the fact that. they couldn't, yeah, they couldn't get loans, they couldn't. It's, that's what Williams rendering mm -hmm. thanks to the to the Williams uh, project, um, and the next one, you know, showing this inordinate pride in that construction. Um, so here's a here's a people who are completely marginalized economically, who created their own pathways towards basically towards a middle class life with insurance and and home mortgages, and that incredible sense of pride and the steel in the building. Um, and then the fact that it's, I think its fate is still undecided, although it became, thanks to advocates here in LA, I think it's culture, I think it's monument number 580. Mm -hmm. um, but thanks to you, all those murals are still in the building and the building is still, you know, is still standing. So I think that the kind of, the places like this that are generated from people who are marginalized or like the one back, um, back up in Keene in terms of the iconography of, so there's, this is a procession going into Nuestra Señora Reina de La Paz, or La Paz, as it's shortened, um, which uh, was, was purchased by a wealthy Los Angelino. Someone knows who it was, I'd love to know, because the Park Service won't tell me, um, because Kern County wouldn't let the UFW and Cesar Chavez buy it in 1970, so a wealthy benefactor bought it and then resold it to them, and as many of you know, became the headquarters of the farm workers' movement, and this year, if you could just fast forward, and there's, so this is interesting, this is an old sanitarium, that TB sanitarium, dates from 1914. 20 years ago, we would have considered its significance for what it tells us about health and the practice of, of open air, you know, uh, healing practices uh, in California. But now, of course, and that's Chavez, occupies 27 buildings on the site, Chavez House was there, and then here's your man. Um, and it took having a Secretary of Interior, you know, Ken Salazar, the first Latino Secretary of the Interior, to push the efforts to recognize this really complex diversity of place. Um, and here's a completely remade landscape and reimagined landscape through which the UFW ran its headquarters and is still owned by um, the, whoops, I think I've lost this. Uh, is still owned by uh, the Chavez Foundation. So I think some great lessons for us in that kind of, it, there doesn't have to be this um, incredible sense of architectural uh, significance like there is, of course, in the Paul Williams building or in Tom Maine's buildings, but there can be this very kind of organic response uh, to the occupation of a place and its remaking that I know you do a lot yeah, of, well, Kathy. You know, yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about this is also, you know, in contrast to, I think, the previous panel in which place was still defined by the objects in place and the social uses of those places, um, considered in their making, but history being kind of a barrier rather than um, a means by which people might be able to forge connections in a very personal way or, you know, out of a kind of um, in both intellectual 
you know, connection with? In other words, what are the ways that we make these various connections with places? And I think that it goes beyond sort of just the architecture or high architecture of, you know, the architects we can name. And that, you know, some of, I think, Camilo's uh, photographs point out the fact that, you know, spaces are lived in and they change according to that. And oftentimes they become part of a storyscape as opposed to just, um, a, you know, a space of built forms. In other words, you know, I know something happened here, right? There's a story of Cesar Chavez. There's a story of Filipino workers that we may not really pay attention to without having something you know, pointing the way, or I might look at your photographs and say, well, there's a whole story of South Los Angeles that, you know, I wouldn't know without having some marker that leads me down that path. So I actually think there's, I mean, I think it's, um, it's not true that pre preservation freeze, you know, is reliant upon freezing a building in, in time. I think that that's ch a changing approach. There's a changing approach to preservation um, in terms of buildings be able, being able to mark several different elements of lived experience and that they're important because of that lived experience as much as right. you know, the architects who may have built them. So I think this idea that buildings are also containers for memory uh, is really important and I think it you know, fits in with a larger sense of you know, what I keep thinking of as um, storyscape, that you see a building and it leads you down a path of both you know, sort of mental conjuring and ways that you know you might experience that urban fabric, and people before you may have also, right? You need a little, you need a little clue to get to some of those invisible histories. Well, right? You wouldn't know from just looking at this building. Well, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, going back to the previous panel, and uh, my friend Donna asked, you know, made the comment that uh, you know she wants to go see the iconic building, whether it's Disney Hall or when she travels. But you, you were observing that that's what makes Los Angeles a peculiar place for tourists. I mean, mm -hmm. do you, do you go down? You know, you say I want to go see those those places in Camilo's pictures or, uh, you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's why I think there's so many different Los Angeleses, which is why LA becomes such an iconic place, right? It's iconic in part because there's a circulation of images around it, right? And yet what makes it so real to so many of us is exactly the opposite, right? That you can't actually tell what it's about. And, and you kind of want to get in your car because it's as if the windshield view is somehow going to give you, like it's somehow going to all open up to you. Right? And really, without being in a car, how can you figure out Los Angeles? Right? It's built upon the car. Um, you know, that sprawl, I mean, you kind of got to get that sense of it. And how do you? It's, it's really challenging, I think, for tourists. So, of course, you have to pick up on the icons, because otherwise, what would you do? You would just you spend I mean, a month. Right, yeah, you spend a month, <laughs> but you wander also, right? I mean, you can't really land in LA and not get in a car, um, because it would defy you know, the, the legibility that you had from the airplane view even, right? It, it extends forever. How are you going to get that, right? It's just such a hard place to grab onto, I think. And what did we do before we hit Disney Hall as, like, the postcard view? Right. Well, I mean, not getting in a car at LAX <laughs> not only denies what Los Angeles is, but also you'll still be there because we, our rail doesn't go there. So. <laughs> right, exactly. But you'd be in a Paul Williams building and, and it would be and okay. can I just say that yeah. one of the things that's really funny about our public transportation too is that if you do want to go to the airport, you can go to Union Station, another icon, it, it should be an iconic building. It's a beautiful building. But you know, to be able to get to the airport from there, you actually have to go around the back of the building. You can't go in the front of the building. You have to go around the back and then you have to find a bus. And then the bus from the train station will take you to the airplane. But of course, none of it is actually marked. So in this land of incredible <laughs> signage, we've got this loss, right? Again, this loss of legibility, right? So in, in some ways, I think for a long time, LA was known you know, for its signage, right? The Hollywood sign, billboards, layers of um, ethnic you know, signs, things in different languages, right? And, and yet, you know, again, the humor to, for me is that you, know, you, you kind of can't, still can't figure it out or, or know where to go. Yeah. And, and since you, you've 
spend a lot of time thinking about signage and, and, and Alas, advertising. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if we give you the job of making the tourism poster for LA, are you going to put Disney Hall up there? You, what are you going to put Ooh, on there? That is so difficult. You know, my, you know, my tendencies right now, and I think it's because... Um, Oh, my tendency right now, um, and I think it's in part because I've done a lot of work on Wilshire Boulevard, my tendency right now is to want to have some other kind of layering, you know, almost like a MacArthur Park image. Um, oh, oh, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, again, I, I don't know what the icon of the city is. In a way, I almost prefer, in, I think there was a moment first in the 60s and then later after a whole range of earthquakes and fires where there was a repetition of that postcard. Maybe some of you, it was called like, dig those crazy freeways. And it was one of those, oh, yeah. um, it was a 60s postcard with all of the freeways sort of intersecting. And then years after, when we had fires and floods and earthquakes, it was all about those. And I felt like those almost seemed more genuine to Los Angeles because they were about that apocalyptic vision of the city. Whereas, you know, you know because it's always been about sunshine and noir, right? Mike Davis talks about that and it's really hard to avoid that. It happens in movies, it happens in all these ways. But then I think about MacArthur Park where I've got this image of this lake in the middle of this city and this place that's really urban and, you know, where you can go to Langer's Deli and get a pastrami sandwich, but you're just as likely to hear Nawa, right? To have Mayan culture around you as anything else. And to me, that's LA, right? Or that on the left-hand side of this image where you see the green, that's actually a soccer field where there used to be water. And that came not, you know, that's where people were activists, people who were grassroots activists for soccer, right? Ended up changing city policy because the park wasn't supposed to have a soccer field. It's a park for, you know, want meandering, right? And so we've got this incredible example of the way that people actually, the same thing for the LA River, you know, you know, the city and designers um, and, you know, those responsible for infrastructure paved over the LA River. It's the classic story of LA, right? Rendered it invisible uh, until it became really just a scene for movies, right? And then people started using that river, fishing in it, walking along it, and then trying to take, you know, kayak trips down it until finally it becomes declared a navigable waterway. So today, that's what the LA River is, and there's a reclamation process going on. And I kind of see that as happening throughout the city, that it's, this is really a model for the ways in which there is this grassroots exchange and we're starting to see it in a whole lot of different ways where there's an incredible set of layering of power and, and, and social engagement that is happening and that you kind of don't necessarily see in one image. So I prefer my MacArthur Park site as a place okay. to visit. But that gets also back also not only to the discussion of the first panel but, but to the fundamental issue of this panel, which is it does seem like the, the grand plans, whether they're for an individual building or a city, never seem to work out and it take, takes mm -hmm. a certain amount of time until there's a popular, uh, you know, either slowly and over little things or, or a genuine uprising to change it. So, I mean, do we, do we go back to this idea that before we design these things we have to uh, have a completely different process. Uh, again, I don't want to put that all on you, Peter, but as an architect, you, you know, let's talk about <laughs> process and, and I, mean, I know in your work you've tried some different processes in terms of working with clients' narratives to come up with something different. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, I, well, I actually grew up, you know, maybe she you go that, to this yeah. slide, I actually grew up with an architect and okay. grew up in, a, in West Los Angeles in a house my father remodeled and and in some ways, I kind of, I guess, digested kind of firsthand. The next one. Uh, it's the yellow. Yellow. Right there. Yeah. This image is actually from Home Magazine. I don't know if many of you um, from Los Angeles probably 
pretty aware of it, and I grew up in a house that my father transformed, and I was kind of horrified about the idea of becoming an architect. And <laughs> this, this image here is, is um, you know, you can see kind of the yellow super graphics on the, the kitchen where, you know, every piece of uh, china or cup was supposed to kind of have its place, and the house, had, the, the house had its white walls, and, you know, kind of growing up, there was a kind of love-hate, because on one level, I kind of learned so much from having a you know, the experience in the arts and the architecture and kind of growing up with that. On the other hand, the level of kind of, I mean, I think part of what's going, this discussion is about the interface between, let's say, controlling the environment, whether it's the architect kind of imposing a certain kind of will or whether it's, you know, sometimes architects are very critical of preservationists where we feel like, well, the city can't really transform because, you know, the preservationists are saying, well, you've got to do it this way and usually it's, we would say it's very conservative, and, and I think even Camilo's pictures are, part of what's fascinating about LA is the city transforms despite, despite let's say, yep. preservation, or, or despite, let's say, somebody, some architect with a very dominant personality sort of saying, I'm gonna do this building here. There's, there's all these other forces kind of at will, and, and I think in my own work, I don't, you can go to the next, you can jump a couple ahead. Let's see forward. Yeah, this, this back right there. Um, you know what, my strategy, I guess, or I don't know if it's a strategy, but you know, having, I started off as, as Peter says, a documentary photographer, and I think maybe that experience was one where I grew up in LA where it was so kind of layered and, and culturally subtle, and, and in some ways, I was always suspect of the monument, of suspect of, you know, I think what you're talking yeah. about, Kathy, yeah. is, the experience of LA is not, hasn't been, I, I said earlier, by and large, the architecture wasn't visible as monuments. You kind of experience the street, you experience the culture, different types of people. And so I think how I've tried to work, let's say, and, and maybe have a slightly different model of an architect is, is sort of think, well, what are the narratives of the city and how are they emerging and how can I, as an architect, in a sense, almost more like a documentary filmmaker or a filmmaker might work with a story. You, you, you look for clients that are, are building, but of course, hopefully they have interesting you know, stories, in a sense, to embed into spaces and buildings and, that, and sort of add to the richness of the city. So this is, this is a Thai restaurant in Pasadena I did. That's actually my client um, who, you know, she was an orphan in Thailand, came here, she kind of worked her way up from, you know, bus boy, quote unquote, bus woman, and, and at some point, I, I was occupying a space um, actually on that site, a small little commercial building, and she bought, she, I was renting it, and she said, well, I'm gonna get this building, can you help me? Mm -hmm. And you know, we developed a relationship, and she started showing me you know, textiles and things from her culture, but at the same time, she was very much straddling you know, two, multiple worlds, but certainly she had come here, and she, wanted, she didn't want something that was just from her place. She wanted something that was somehow connected to her, where she came from, but also was somehow about the future. So I think that for me, in terms of architecture, I don't really counterpose the past and the future because I'm, I'm ultimately interested in building the next, being involved in how the city transforms. And that's kind of, course, of approach. I'm some years down the line, we'll get Camila's photograph of it when it's a taco restaurant. <laughs> but in a way, that's fine. I mean, I yeah, think that, right. you know, even if you look at, the, let's say, the 
Renaissance churches, you see that there's layers of architects, layers of history, and there's transformation. So, I mean, what, I think part of my own question in terms of the preservation community sometimes, having had an office in Pasadena and recently moved, is it, it was a very entrenched preservation community that in some ways I don't think was as enlightened about, uh, at least the way I'm hearing you speak about it, about what it means to, to, to have something new in an environment where maybe there's something old. Well, show us maybe your church, because I think that the... the oh, this is a renovation or I work, you know, it's, and it's related maybe to mm -hmm. Camillo's work in that, you know, there's that history of taking sort of um, commercial buildings and transforming them into sacred mm -hmm. spaces or, you know, which often happens right. in storefronts. And this was a movie theater. It was actually a Lemley's in Pasadena where I often went to see art mm -hmm. films. And a group of Pentecostal Christians bought it and hired me to transform it. And it had a very interesting trust structure. And then I built a series of volumes inside the structure that served different purposes. And one of them in that picture is a kind of a toddler's space for, you know, and of course I didn't, and in this particular case, I didn't have control, and I didn't have aesthetic control over all aspects of it. I kind of saw my roles making more of a framework and then the, these people were gonna kind of do their own installation. Part of that was just very much budget. You know, Should many we? people don't have access to you know, build, to build a monument or even hire an architect. So. Right. But I think this is also maybe John King's point from the last panel that the, the large spaces of either the 19th century that are, that are let, lend themselves to adaptive reuse and the, the kind of adaptive reimagination is, is largely, I think what we're gonna be dealing with in the post, 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 what are we, postmodern landscape, whatever post we're in, um, especially a very large, a very large uh, structures um, in the overbuilt commercial landscapes of the hinterlands in terms and the overbuilt suburbia. So I guess don't get drunk out there. Um, but uh, for where I'm from out in the Inland Empire originally, the, both the rapidity of change that, you know, and you see this in the exhibition, that great shot of 1935 and 1955, and you, don't, you go from oil barracks, you know, to a completely built out set of neighborhoods between Wilshire and La Brea. Um, but I think the eminent reusability of the past both um, in terms of its richness of heritage, as well as of its real interesting diversity of building types. And I would, I would also counter Mr. Kent about brutalism in that understanding that form and understanding the expression um, of, uh, especially of concrete, which is an inherently fluid and flexible material. Um, so I, I actually think this is, you know, it, especially for large uses that are no longer compatible with our modern needs, you know. So I, I will send you out to do some of those old Costco's or see what you can do inside. No, I mean, it's a very, I think that's a very real kind of understanding of trying to what we're going to do with space and how we're going to privilege it. And instead of just throwing it away, it's not styrofoam. You well, know, it's no, architecture. Well, well, yeah, there's the, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think one of the things that's happening with the city is that it's kind of turning back inward and people really don't want to be traveling great distances. And, you know, I guess the discussion earlier is unless we get a, as the transit system gets better, maybe it'll be easier to move across the city, but the city's kind of turned back in on itself. Right, but, but, I mean, this is also, since it's a movie theater, it's not only a change that has to do with some of those infrastructural, it has a, it's a change that has to do with just cultural, cultural shift. And, and 
Yeah, this is brilliant, and there's, I think there's a case in the exhibition of a, of a movie theater turned into a church as well. But of course, you know, some of the gems of Los Angeles are the movie palaces, which right. most of which are completely neglected. And do you, do you really want to gut them and reuse well, them, or do you want yeah, to? I, I don't know. Most of, I, I mean, if you think of, I mean, Broadway of downtown is, you know, the highest concentration of, you know, of old movie palaces anywhere in the country. It's a National Register district and all that. And Stunning. it's utilized really, um, it, I mean, I won't Absolutely. say well for all of them, but there are several that are churches that are, you know, I mean, uh, church use is absolutely consistent in, in my mind with the use of a movie theater, right? A lot of people coming together in sort of a communal space. So, I mean, it may not look the way it did when, you know, movie palaces were in their heyday, but I think it's a really, I think that's a fantastic mode of use. And, you know, I think that, you know, Broadway now is experiencing a lot of gentrification. I know you live in the Orpheum building, which is a great, you know, wonderful renovated building, and it is used as a movie theater with housing upstairs, and it's, you know, absolutely beautiful. But I actually like that, you know, diversity of, of uses and the fact that the street still is populated with, you know, people who are selling socks and then also people who are going to, you know, get their, you know, vegan brownies, um, although I understand the vegan brownie shop closed, so, but, but, um, but no, I mean, I think that there's something there's to be said for There's more vegan brownies yeah. coming downtown. <laughs> right. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, but I that's because you know, of activists, have, though. Right. That's because people cared, because of the right, conservancy right. and others. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. obviously good things happening there, but of course, you know, all the money's going one block over because, you know, a person who decided mm -hmm. that, who, who, who made a lot of those suburban houses decided we needed a neat, mm -hmm. iconic building, and and a few more, uh, so. Whatever could uh, you be speaking of? No, no, no. um, I think they want us to go to questions. I recently went to a conference that was sponsored by the Bauhaus University of Weimar in uh, Pomona Caltech, and uh, uh, Caltech, uh, Pomona Cali Poly. Yeah, um, and they were, the, the whole issue and the reason why they had it here was uh, reclaiming the streets. And, and, uh, and the two questions that came out of that is being, uh, what happened in New York and Boston and a few other where, you know, you have the highline effect where you have like this old infrastructure that's being redone and reused. Do you see anything like that happening in Los Angeles? There's been talk about the freeway being turned into uh, covered in green. And second of all was uh, turned into a, a park, what have you. Uh, second of all is uh, uh, the, and the Germans' uh, government has a lot of in social engagement with new projects and what have you. In Los Angeles, you have the neighborhood councils and those kind of things. Do you think that that would be a way to further re, like MacArthur Park mm. or in other areas where you have a lot of uh, community involvement? Is that a way for the future of Los Angeles to get these uh, refurbishments or? Uh, getting the community back involved with urban planning and what have you? I think the LA River is the version of, you know, urban reclamation that is the parallel to Highline in New York in a, in a much more dramatic and large-scale way because um, there have been lots of visions for parks. And I think, the, I think the city council, one of the city, people running for city council in CD 12 or 13 is proposing an um, elevated park over streets so that, that's always been floating around, but I think what's really on the ground and what's really happening is along the LA River, which is still rendered, in, it's still fairly invisible to people. How do you access it? And I think that's where 
lots of policymakers and people through different parts of the city are coming together to figure out how to actually make those spaces usable and have been very successful in, in, in many places in, in doing so. But I think that's the sort of connection through the city in the future, this transformation of what was an invisible infrastructure into actual usable space that intersects many different communities. And maybe add into the mix and not as uh, stark way, but bicycling as, mm -hmm. as starting both through events and through bike lanes and, and, and the necessity of bicycling, mm -hmm. I think is also going to, mm -hmm. with time, transform the city. You know, one of the things I've heard, you know, about the, the uh, you talked about council, I think it was council districts. Um, neighborhood neighborhood. neighborhood no, councils. Neighborhood councils. I mean, one of the things you often hear planners complain about is that the city of LA doesn't have a very strong planning department and things are very fragmented in that each council, what was it called, council, uh, neighborhood council, it's, it basically breaks the city down into a series of kind of fiefdoms in a way. And so that, at least that's been a complaint I've heard a lot about, and I'm just, you know, I'm curious about that myself, because I think one of the things that is emerging and is the need for, let's say, larger public spaces, let's say the, the change of the river or, you know, or connecting um, people to parks and, and whatnot in the city. And, you know, I think, what do you think? politically it's a difficult, you know, yeah. how that happens without strong planning. <laughs> Where I think it is the most available land and available space to do anything are the alleys in LA. LA is full of alleys. Mm -hmm. What are they used for? Some of them are used as art galleries. If you go in the 20s, then the, you know, around Central Avenue. Mm -hmm. If you go on both sides, that's where the murals are. And, and Some of it is used for homeless housing. Some. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's where a lot of the shacks of the people who get kicked out of uh, downtown, that's where they're going. Uh, but every time I see them, you know, and particularly, you know, because I drive all those alleys back and forth to get on the roof of the car and see what people are doing. And, uh, and uh, I, it, it, sometimes the alleys get blocked, you know, there's huge amount of, you know, <coughs> debris that accumulates there and you can't go through. But that, that, that's a big resource. It's a, a, and sometimes the life of the, the, home, the home life is oriented. That's where you get your car out. That's where you get your car in. Uh, that, that's what your dog is. That's what you mean. You know, the hundreds and thousands of dogs that I have met. So, <laughs> so, so I don't know, but it seems to me that that's, that's, the alleys are a great resource. Just, just one thing, if you don't mind. I think the answer maybe lies within both, that somehow the challenge is to be, LA is a city of neighborhoods and, and communities within a very large uh, geographic city, and it's a city-state, if you will. I see California as a nation-state, and I see LA as a city-state, and I think framing it along state lines is probably not a bad a bad conception because then you need to get to when does the city state need to come together to do truly large infrastructure improvements to reimagine a collective kind of new spine or a new way of mobility and still maintain you know an, a kind of an organic response to community and which is largely being done through um, you know through making community planning even more and more fine grained so but I think it's that telescoping that uh, that is difficult. You know, because we all have very, very busy, engaged lives, and and I also make 
a passionate plea, um, just, I think, as a community thinker, which we all are, and which this forum provides such beautiful, and thank you, Getty and Zocalo, is to get involved. I mean, the, the, the very act activism of civic engagement, of the civitas, really, is all of our responsibility, whether it's volunteering on a commission or on a local project or on, a, on one of the neighborhood councils, uh, one of the many ways in which you can intersect and help reshape the built environment we've all been nattering on about. Wonderful, thank you so much. <laughs>